This is Bare Knuckles and Brass Tacks, the cybersecurity podcast that tackles the vendor-customer relationship and everything in between. This week, we ran into several issues, including a sick guest and some time zone tango as George A. and I are both traveling. So we're bringing you a best of edition featuring key moments from recent conversations with Evgeny Kram, Eliza May Austin, Metis4, aka Caitlin Bowden, and Jeff Wheatman. We touch on tactical booth strategies, reputation recovery from bad outreach, a hacker's advice on getting started, and what male allies can do to stamp out toxic masculinity in cyber, and how to lead sales with giving and relationship building. Also this week, we're featuring a recent voice memo sent in from listener Nick Mullen. Thanks for sending that. If you have an experience, good or bad, that you want to share, record a memo and send it our way to bareknucklespod, all one word, at gmail.com. That's bareknucklespod at gmail.com. We'd love to feature your experience. All right, let's kick it off with the Evgeny Kharam. So let's talk about booth strategy. Evgeny, you brought up essentially the question of qualifying, right? Somebody comes up to the booth and you need to very quickly decide or determine, you know, are they here for the t-shirt or are they here with a legitimate business need? Are they a technical buyer? Are they asking about business stuff? So what are your recommendations for booth staffing? What are the questions they should be asking? How should they be approaching people who come up to the booth? So it really depends on the person that's asking the questions and mm-hmm. I guess how open they are, they are. As the simple things to do is to be polite and introduce what you do. So, hi, I'm Evgeny. I'm a technical marketing person. And now George needs to explain who he is because I just did introduction. Mm-hmm. So George told me, hey, I'm a student in university or I'm an architect there. So at least I know what you're doing. At least this is going to be the first one because majority of people will do is it cannot explain what they do and who they are. It's a very good indication <laughs> that uh, here's the t-shirt go away because <laughs> they don't have enough maturity there. Now, and then you guess, okay, how can I help you? And you actually can give them choices. And this is related to the same idea when vendor pitch over a Zoom. Like, I can give you t-shirt, but you don't have to say it. Like you can enjoy one hour swag. I can do a demo with technology. I can explain how it's working. So I'm not asking you what you want to learn. I, I can kind of giving you rails, but give you choices. Mm-hmm. And you can still choose what to do, but I'm not, you cannot choose, I want everything. So this way you yep. tell me, oh, thank you very much. I actually just want to have this t-shirt, or I'm actually interested in this technology, and this will help you to navigate what they want, and not just trying to pitch right away about the technology. Yeah, and so that brings up one one quick follow-up question. Does that have implications for how you staff that booth, right? You mentioned, do you need a technical person there? Do you need a marketing person there? Do you, like, what do you see as sort of the range of disciplines as being important? In my humble opinion, it has to be a mix. And you Mm -hmm. have to have a technical person. Depend on the size of the conference as well. Because mm-hmm. the bigger the conference, the more money you pay for the conference, the more people that are mixed you want to have there. So it could be a salesperson, SDR, marketing, technical, and you may rotate between them. But it's also completely okay to talk to person. One second, I'm a marketing person. I think it beyond my knowledge, but give me in one minute, I'll get George, Evgeny, John. Or if I don't mm-hmm. have John, it's like, you know what? 
I want to continue this conversation. Would you able to meet later on for coffee or come tomorrow at 1 p.m.? We're going to have the exact person you need. Yeah, that's good. I think that is a very surprisingly open and honest way to do business, but I don't see it. I don't, I see people kind of fall into the trap of trying to explain their way out of a problem that maybe they don't understand. But I think, I think it's perfectly fine to just say like, you know, so I don't, I run to the limit about trust. I mm. think there is so much sure. One of my friends just mentioned a very interesting kind of term about educated buyer. So people are very educated. People can sniff scrap and sniff bullshit right away. Yeah. So if you are not who you are, and don't get me wrong, I do like the term fake it until you make it. And sometimes we need to do that, and I do that as well. But you cannot just fake it and not make it. You have to actually <laughs> bring this bar higher, 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 and higher. So you fake right. it until you're learning, because next time you're not going to fake it because you already learned your lesson. So you're not doing this. Right. So you maybe pretending to, to do level, but then you need to realize where you're stopping. Say, okay, I'm not going to go there. And yeah. call someone that's actually qualified. For example, if I'm a technical person in the booth and somebody asks how much it costs, how do you license it? And I say, okay, no, we license this product by number of users. Unfortunately, I cannot tell you about the MSRP or the pricing, but I'm happy to bring XYZ to talk to you about the pricing. Don't even try to go to this part. Hmm. That's good. Good. All right, over to you, George. I, I'd see that as an opportunity to actually be vulnerable at a certain point where like, hey, I'm going to show you I'm being honest. This is like the limit of my active knowledge on this right now or what I can help you with. But let me direct you some. I, I think as, as a buyer, I appreciate that more than anything else, because if there's one thing that I can see through in terms of bullshit is when I'm dealing with a sales individual who's giving me a script, but they don't actually know what they're talking about. They haven't read, they haven't actually studied their product catalog. They haven't actually used their product. You, there's a world of a difference and you're, you're bang on. Yeah. Um, George, don't we have a problem with the vendor society? When you, you come to a booth, you ask somebody a question and then basically every answer is, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. It's like, why are you even here? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that's the, for, for organizations, train your train your sellers, give them time to actually learn what they're selling. That's, that's pretty basic. Um, but I, I do have to kind of bring it back a little bit, though, because we're talking about non-traditional training methods, though that should be a traditional training method. How important is it for leaders in our industry on both sides of the aisle um, to seek out training experiences and opportunities in non-cyber settings. I mean, you spoke about rager training earlier to stress the importance of open and concise communication. In your experience, what other similar events or experiences or opportunities have you had or heard about that give that kind of outside the box approach to improving people's quality of professionalism? I think soft skills are fundamental right now. I have quite a lot what to say about soft skills. I'm spending quite a lot of time in the area as well, but there's other training. And talking about concise communications, I think the easiest and the cheapest way to learn communication is actually Toastmasters. Mm-hmm. Because it's available, I think, almost worldwide. It's an amazing organization, and they teach you how to speak 
They teach you how to get to the point. They teach you how to not to use filler words, because unfortunately, a lot of people will start, hi, I am mm, Evgeny, um, and I here to mm, present, you know, like the product. <laughs> and you're like, what are you trying to say? Are you a senior person? Seriously? So you can learn how to communicate more effectively, how to communicate more clearly, And I'm one of these people that learn to myself because you basically allocate a small part of the CPU in your brain to watch what you're saying and have a pause between sentences and not try to consistently say something that doesn't mean anything. So there is other trainings that are available. I think there is also training that can be done in a mentor way when you have a mentor in the company, outside the company, that can control and explain what you do wrong and do it better. I am a very big believer on when you join a company, you listen to other people speak, communicate, and present or whatever they do, because this is what you need to do. And also when other people join the company and now you helping them, you giving them feedback. And again, you give them feedback to help them not to kind of bring them down. Yeah. Yeah. I want to turn this question over to you, George. Do you see, I want to turn it slightly differently. Do you see any areas where these trainings would be most effective, maybe not necessarily communication. We've touched on that a lot. I, I see a lot of problems with the shift to remote work. I mean, it's 2023 and maybe we've been in it for long enough now, but I still see companies that like over rotate on meetings. They don't document. And I just think that there are some processes that didn't get really translated from in office to remote teams. And just curious if you see other facets of organizational leadership that have those at a, at a basic level and i appreciate the turnaround on it, at a basic level we should be emphasizing cohesion building right so when you're working mm-hmm. in a remote setting in my experience what's missing is the inherent human trust that comes from having worked in like an office together where you're sharing a space and yeah. it's it's kind of like evgeny's talked about it's not the actual meetings or events it's the waiting in line for coffee it's the, you know, mm-hmm. going for a uh, beer after work. It's, it's the, it's the stuff in between the cracks. That's where real chemistry gets built. Cause that's how people really get to know each other. So we're lacking that a little bit, especially in a remote setting. So I think one of the biggest things is putting together training events that really emphasize like, Hey, how can we build trust together that aren't like way too corny? Like that's kind of the challenge. And then uh, one thing that we do at my company is we try to make sure that at least once a month and once a quarter, like at a company level, we all physically get together. We physically get together. We do planning. We try to work through problems. We have a team of teams approach. We develop software together. Those kinds of communications, even if we don't solve all the problems during those sessions, that sit down time for one or two days, we're all physically sitting together in the same room, trying to deal with things. Then we're going out for food after, or we're, we're doing things in the evenings. That kind of thing pays dividends for literally the rest of the month and beyond. Yeah, It's just right. simple touches like that. We've had um, problems where someone's come in from, uh, you know, a, a bigger tech company because they've wanted to work in a startup and then been like, oh, there's no office so I can get away with not doing anything or um, there's no beanbags. I want healthcare and dental and this and that. And you just think we're in the UK. <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about? Um, it's, it's a different kettle of fish. Um, so, yeah. So there's a there's been an entitlement mm. issue as well. Um, I think one of the funniest stories 
is um, I mean, it doesn't sound funny. It sounds quite dark, but it's a very funny story. There was um, there was one guy that joined the team in in sales. You know, he was okay. He was he was perfectly nice. Um, I think his dad died when he was about four or something like that. So he was, you know, and he mentioned that once. Um, and I, that's fine. And I have a lot of empathy for that. But you don't really know your parents when you're four years old. You don't know. You know, you think Santa Claus is real. Anyway, so my dad died, and he took a week off because he was triggered. So I had to work. Jesus. To, you know, sort, you know, sort his flat out, pack up all of his things um, what and work because I couldn't take the week off because he took the week off because he felt emotionally okay. triggered. So, like, this is the kind of stuff that is, like, we have kissed, we've not kissed some frogs, we've kissed some serpents. Um, we had a hilarious case of... Um, you know, someone coming in with the title of sales manager and thinking they oh. manage everything mm. in the company. Um, you know, that's one way to make a founder <laughs> hate you. Um, so there's just it's just been a weird thing. It's been weird. We've had we've had some knockbacks on our reputation as well. I'm not gonna lie to you though. That first dude, like, look, I'm in how I run my team. I'm very like. I don't micromanage. I'm all about people like they know what they need to do as long as you get it done on time or you've identified why you can't go for mm, it. I don't same. care. Micromanaging is exhausting and I have too much real shit to think about. But this attitude, maybe it's yeah. like having foreign parents who are like quite disciplined at home. Maybe it's all my years in the army. I have no patience for that shit. Like, like I'm hearing you say that no. and I want to pick up my monitor Ow. and throw it at them from Ottawa. Yeah. Don't like, fuck him out, guys. Fucking insane. <laughs> yeah, get out. Get out. And I think what I was just about to say is generally throughout all of them, there's been this sort of shift backwards in our reputation as well on, on a small scale um, each time, which is why we're so hesitant mm-hmm. and so keen on getting it right this time because the, the, they've done outreach. You know, we've said we don't do outreach. We don't spam people with emails because mm. we'll get our domain blocked. We don't spam people on LinkedIn DMs because eventually people that we want access to will stop going on LinkedIn. So we just want to leave people alone, put ourselves out there, say the right stuff, share knowledge, make blog posts, speak at conferences, and then people will eventually come to us, hopefully. Um, but they've gone, I know what I'm talking about because I've got experience in sales. So they've just done all this fucking outreach. And then I've had people on the phone that's, you know, a CISO I've met at B-Sides, you know, two years ago that I'm pretty friendly with saying, why the fuck is some guy called blah, body, blah calling me? Why the fuck oh, is this God. person messaging me? I'm, I'm about to block your company. And I'm like, dude, please. So you have to then, you know, I know best because I've got experience in sales. And you just think, that's not the right, we don't want that then. So we've tried people with no experience in sales. Um, that's not worked out. And, you know, just because it's not worked out, not because we've got any horror stories there. But yeah, it's just, it's an interesting ride. And when it's such an undefinable role, that, that LinkedIn post is literally the job spec. It's just kind of like, come and join us and have some fun and enjoy learning about cybersecurity. And we've talked about it. We've talked about it with others on the show and amongst ourselves. And you highlighted it in your post that curiosity is like the number one trait. If you're, if you are just genuinely not a curious person, it means two things. One, you're not really going to advance in cyber because things change all the time. But two, you're also not curious about other people, mm. right? So that's where that ego shield comes up that you assume you already know everything, that you don't have anything to learn 
from the client who has a problem. It's yeah. just, uh, it's really annoying. And I, I've had a horror sh- sh- stories also of very experienced salespeople who are very experienced, but in startup land, they'll come in and they'll be like, cool, what BDR is setting all my meetings? Where are all these assets? Where are these case studies? And I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> you got to create them. <laughs> it's like, you might have to build them. And then they, they sort of fuck off after three months because they're, they want, they want like a process that we just don't have in startling. Yeah, don't yeah. join a startup, you dickhead. Yeah, but I mean, look, it's the same thing with like practitioners. Like I've, I've been involved with tons of startups um, since I started doing this post army, and I think it's a particular skill set and a particular particular type of personality that can go into a place and be like, well, my title says this, but I'm going to do like six varying jobs on any given day, mm-hmm. and because you know, there's like four of us to be the entire company like i I think Mm. there has to be realistic expectations and whether it's like large-scale industry or whether it's startup land like i had a guy that worked for me um you know up until uh like we'll say i i think early this year early last year and they would constantly be sending me like job posts and these like um these like media reports that would talk about these insane salaries like Three hundred thousand plus dollars USD for like uh, an architect role and shit like that, and I'm like, cool. If that's where you want to work, go for it. But that's not how we pay things here. So, mm. like, it, it, mm. it's like again, it's if mm. if you think the grass is always greener on the other side, it probably is for you, man. So, don't waste both of our times. Yeah. Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> You have talked about five years of organic growth, and we've touched a little bit on that. Um, tell us about the factors that you helped achieve that that you might pass on to another founder. You know, there there are some maybe unique elements to your personality and to your co-founders that we said is like an alchemy that can't be replicated. But if somebody were to ask you, like, how have you achieved such organic growth? What would you say to them? Well, we're in our fifth year, so it's been four and a bit years. So, I mean, it feels like it feels like yesterday that we started the company, but it also feels like twenty years ago. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. Advice that I would give, I would say that we've um, we've concentrated on solving problems, and we've not let ourselves get skewed by looking at the competition. We don't care what our competition are doing. They care because they, you know, they look at my LinkedIn profile every day, which is great. It's really flattering, but they've obviously <laughs> got a lot of time on their hands to do that. And um, so we don't, we don't look at what the competition are doing. We keep our heads down, and we're confident in the fact that we understand the problems and we are bringing the solution. We're not creating a problem to sell a solution. So that's kept us in good stead, um, and we've not gone. We do all cybersecurity services. And diluted ourselves. We've gone. Mm-hmm. We've got the pocket seam brand. We do sock. We do seam, and we do these different tiers of it. And then we've gone. We do offensive security, and we do defense. We've not said we do. You know, dark web monitoring, threat intelligence, as well. Blah. There's loads of stuff we don't do, and we've we've refined the things we do do, so that we've become an authority in that space. Um. So we are an authority in the purple team space. You know. Uh, we are an authority in the same space as well. So we're not an authority in 
everything else. You know, people don't think of pen testing and immediately think of us, and that's fine. People don't think of, um, you know, ISO 27001 and think of us. We don't care. We don't do it. So we concentrate on what you do. Ignore, put the blinkers on, put the horse blinkers on, and, and don't think about the things that you don't do and what your competitors are doing. Brilliant. You know, you're you're not afraid to fail. Like, I mean, everyone's like kind of afraid to fail on some level, but you're not you're not so afraid to fail. It cripples you from trying. No. Yeah, because the worst case scenario, if everything if everything vanishes tomorrow, the worst case scenario is go and get a job. Mm-hmm. Like, I'll start again. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's so we're we're very much sort of just in tune of keeping on track with what we think is right. And a lot of the time, what we think is right is abrasive to what is dictated to be right in industry, which is great. It means we're doing the right things because we started this because we didn't like the way the industry was working. So we're happy about that. All right, George Squared, I've got a good one for you. So I'm grabbing lunch when a call comes into my personal cell phone. Local caller ID, it actually kind of looks like my doctor's office. I answer, guy asks for me by name, I confirm, and then he immediately launches into a sales pitch for some security company that I've never heard of. So I stop him and I say, you know, hey, you're located here in central Illinois? And he says, no, uh, I'm in New Jersey. Oh, was your company here in central Illinois? And he says, no, uh, we're out of Texas. Huh. So let me get this straight. You're calling my personal cell phone over lunch from a spoofed local number, wanting to pitch me a security product. Is that right? And he says, uh, yeah, I'll go ahead and take you off the list. You just can't make this stuff up. So Caitlin, given your start in the hacking world is based on a real case of device theft. How did you actually begin learning how to do the things when you began as from what sounds like a completely non-technical position? Well, yeah, I was a completely non-technical person. Um, I was a bartender and my ideals of the Internet really didn't extend past, uh, you know, Google and, you know, how to shop online or Facebook. And when I found myself, um, you know, confronted with the fact that my pictures were shared on a uh, an image board uh, site that was dedicated simply to uh, sharing those pictures without consent. And they had us divided up by sluts by state. Um, I started reaching out to the other victims. I didn't really know how to start approaching things in a technical sense, to be honest. Um, I had a friend that taught me about DMCAs and taught me how to remove my images because they mm. were mine. I did have the copyright on them. Um, And when I was reaching out to other victims, I was also teaching them about the DMCA, you know, which also then led me down the rabbit hole of learning how that actually works. And, um, you know, meanwhile, we've got more and more victims joining in. I'm starting to recognize that there are a lot more of us than there are of these guys that are sharing these pictures. And uh, we came up with the idea to start flooding the boards manually. We Somebody could easily have written a very simple script to fill these websites up with pictures of shrek but we decided to do it manually we didn't use you know some crazy vpn system so everybody you know could you know sit there and post multiple pictures and flood it um 
But we realized that if we all just did it at the same time, they really couldn't do anything. Like there was no mm. protections against an actual um, army. And that's what it became. So we uh, started bumping pictures of Shrek. Uh, actually ended up, they had to shut their site down for a while so that they could clean it all up. Um, okay. And that's when, you know, it started, other people started contacting me and like, hey, we know some easier ways that you could do this and started teaching me. And, you know, meanwhile, we're also getting press and things like that. And people are learning like, okay, well, Facebook has a really bad reputation for being a place that, you know, radicalizes people or just uses their data. But one thing is that it was a really great place to do some community um, building and growing of these, this group of victims. And all of us were working together to fight back. So that's kind of how it started. And since then, I've been doing my best to just keep up and learn as much as I can. Given the balance of your recent experiences, I guess, what is your advice to the next generation of hackers? And I have a second follow-up question, but you know, let's say you're at DEF CON and some of these younger folks who are there for the first time come up to you and they're just sort of like wide-eyed and they're just looking for some kind of advice. Like, what would you, what would you tell them? I would tell them to continue being creative. Don't necessarily adhere to what your, you know, expectations of what an infosec professional are. You want to be a hacker? Go out and hack. Um, and I also wanted to tell them to never to underestimate the quote unquote soft skills, the ability to build a community, the ability to motivate others, the ability to encourage others to get creative and work together. That is a very under discussed skill in this community. And, but really more hacking, you know, is done out of a group or just people that are organized better than anywhere else. That's, you know, that's it. Uh, be creative, have fun and uh, always carry stickers. What do you want to see from male allies? Like what is something other than just, you know, retweeting or favoriting? Like what is something that can be more active? This is actually a question that George and I have gotten a lot since we aired on Blast a lot of the stuff that our female colleagues went through at Black Hat. Mm -hmm. um, that one is, it's not a fun answer. It's not one that is going to get you as many kudos as retweeting or creating a thread about you know, how women should be treated. But the fact is that a lot of this stuff breeds in spaces where women are not there. Um, so the biggest thing that allies want to, who want to fight against the sexism in the industry, the biggest thing they can do is to speak up when things are happening when we're not there. Um, you know, if you people talk about locker room talk and if you happen to overhear that and you're in a conversation um, and you hear somebody say something wrong, just say, hey, no, no, bro, not cool. You know, set it, shut it down immediately. And if they want an explanation, you can give them one. But really just, you know, checking people's bad behavior long before it reaches, you know, the point of harm is the easiest way for allies to, you know, fight this kind of thing. You talked about how, you know, the seller engaged with you. There wasn't a lot of rush. You didn't buy at the moment, but you came back around. And we've heard that repeatedly. So 
you know, I take from that tactically what that means is sort of on the sales side, constant engagement of ex- set the expectation of a longer time horizon. And you just sort of have this, you know, irons in the fire at all times. But what would you say about that experience, that level of, you know, either checking in genuine interest, like, you know, now you're on the vendor side, what would you say if you were the sales leader about like, guys, you do expecting somebody to like buy in the first three months that you contact them is, you know, you know, for a seven figure deal is an unreasonable expectation. Absolutely. So I'm a big fan of sort of like the four for one rule. If I should give you four things before I ask you for one, and mm, I don't I think that. there is enough of that, right? So like at Black Kite, our our whole marketing is built around, we're going to provide value for you. And then you will come to us when you need our assistance. So it's not about, hey, buy this and it'll solve all your problems. It's, hey, we've heard that this is a problem. Here are some best, pra- I hate the term best practice, but here, here are some things we see people do that are, are successful, right? Here's, and, and I'm also a big fan of, it's okay to talk about a problem, even if you don't have a solution, because then at least everyone else knows they have the same problems. I think too many people, too many of us think, wow, this is a problem. I'm the only idiot that can't solve it. So I think that that's, that's really important is the, the giving, like when I connect people on LinkedIn, the first thing I do when they connect to me is, Hey, how can I help you? What can I do for you? Is there anything I can help any problems you have that I can help you solve? And that's, that's my whole thing. And if you look at me on LinkedIn and, and, you know, check very rarely do I talk about anything we do. I talk about problems and I try to help people solve them. And I think that that three for one, four for one, I think is the right ratio. And, and to your point, George, I think too many sales and marketing people, maybe they give you one for one, but I think a lot more of them are one for three, right? So they're asking for three things before they give you anything. Right. And I I don't think people are interested in buying. Then, then you end up buying because you have to, not because you want to. And there's no stickiness there. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's kind of, that is very much correct. And I know that like, you know, big motivator for us starting the show was the sheer stress of just like how many vendors I had to deal with. It was just impacting me. It was like literally like I was taking up way too much time in my day along that thought and a lot of other things we kind of talked about it. You were talking about like your meditative process there. There are times at the end of the day where my meditative process is, can I curl into a ball and cry for like 10 minutes? Cause it's, it's, it's okay. I, 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 you do that, George, I will come and rub your back. I promise. <laughs> uh, much appreciated. So my kind of idea here is, is if you can give us um, just some of your tips on, you know, in the heat of this job and it's, it's an insane job. How do you stay sane, generally speaking? Because you're also like not only just doing the job and doing it well, but you're like you're out there. You're putting so much energy in and you're putting your whole like personality out there, which, you know, separately, that's a whole other level of stress. How do you do it, man? How do you keep sane? So that's a great question. And and this may sound like a little bit of a, of a silly answer, but I stay sane by being grateful. Right. I. You know, I just got back from vacation. We went away with a couple. I have known the wife since high school. And I sat her down. I said, you know what, Teddy? I'm so happy that you're in my life. My life is better because you're in it, right? And I think we need to have more gratitude. And I don't think enough of us do. I think we're constantly battling. About four months ago, I realized 
the most common thing out of my mouth was that is so fucking annoying. Like that was all I was saying. And I caught myself <laughs> one day and I was like, that's not helpful. That's not getting us anywhere. So I, I feel George, I think to the, the short answer to your question, I think we have to be grateful for what we have, right? We're grateful for like, I'm grateful for my family. I'm grateful for, you know, my job. Most of the time I really love my job. I'm grateful that you guys are now in my life, right? I, you know, we got introduced through, through our mutual friend, Dave Motti. Um, I'm grateful uh, that we can do some good. And I think that that gratitude, I think, keeps us grounded and puts us in a position where we can then fight the good fight. I think if there's no gratitude, I think it's just it's just a grind. And and I don't think it can be that. I, I talk to people all the time. They never take vacation. I a former boss of mine. So I, when I was in my last job, I had a lot of vacations there a long time. My boss said, you ever take two weeks in a row? And I said, no. He said, you're an idiot. He said, do you take all your vacation? I said, no. He said, you're an idiot. Said, you're entitled to that. Take your time. Whatever is there will be there when you get back. And, and I think that we need to take time for ourselves. If we're not, if we're not good to ourselves, we can't be good to anyone else. Yeah. George, you said hero complex. There's also martyr complex, right? Oh, like, God, yeah. it's been, you know, we're, yeah. we're, the, they're, we're the ones in the line of fire. If we don't stay here in the hot seat through it all. Well, so, so Ginger, you mentioned hero and I'll, I'll just share one last thing. So there, there's a very famous archetype uh, for storytelling out there called the hero's journey. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's, it was created by, uh, Joseph Campbell and he did an analysis of, of a lot of historical literature. And I always tell CISOs, well, I ask them, I go, who's the hero in your story? And they go, me, I go, no, you're not the hero. <laughs> you know who the hero of your story is? The CEO is the hero, the CFO, the COO. Mm. You are the wise person who gives them the magic weapon, gives them the magic sword. In our case, gives them information so they can make better decisions. And when I started talking to people about that, that was a little bit paradigm shifting because then you don't feel like it's all on you right? The hero has so much responsibility. So let's not be the hero. I was just saying Yoda dies. <laughs> You're talking about Yoda. Yoda dies. <laughs> Does he? He becomes, becomes one with the force. Yeah. We all, we all go sometime, but we should go happy. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Thank you. Um, all right, Jeff, I want to end on a super tactical note because I, I really liked what you said here about selling through, not selling to. Um, there's a lot of debate, you know, is the CISO always the ICP for companies? Sometimes it's not. Sometimes, you know, the way the power is delegated, it, you actually Wait, don't I, sell. ICP, in, in, insane clown posse? Yeah, that's the second time someone's made that joke to me <laughs> this week. Um, but yes, ideal customer profile for our practitioners. Um, but I guess I, I want to tie that to what you'd said earlier about like giving, right? This uh, this ratio. So what would be your advice if you were advising other vendors? Like how do you tell these teams like, okay, the the person you're actually selling to might be the CFO, you know, not the, not the CISO. So yeah. What tips do you have there for kind of thinking through that problem? Yeah. I, I always tell our salespeople, go, go to your prospects website, go look at their 10 Ks, go look at mm. their annual reports. Um, 
most organizations, if you do a search for the company name, mission and vision, you'll find some stuff there. And I always say, start there. Just to give you an example, I used to coach CISOs going in front of boards all the time, hundreds and hundreds of them. And 99.9% of the time, there was no business goal in that deck. And I would always Ooh. say, you need to have your business goals, but the board already knows, right? But they don't know you know. So mm. you have to show them. I know what's important to you. And that provides the context. And I think that context is just so critical uh, from that selling through, right? You need to put yourself in the other person's shoes. Um, and, and, you know, again, why, why should I care? Why should, why should that person care? Why should they give you the time to, you know, meet you at the water cooler or, or you know, meet you after hours for a, for a scotch or a beer or a coffee? That's it for this week's episode. If you liked what you heard, we'd like to ask that you share it with one friend this week. It helps others find the show. New episodes drop every Monday. Subscribe to Bare Knuckles and Brass Tacks wherever you get your podcasts.